This is Champagne Problems, where we come together to explore the gray areas of drinking. This is a judgment-free zone where we can all take a look at how we make decisions about our relationship with alcohol. Hello, fine friends. Welcome back. Today, we have therapist, author, and content specialist Amanda White on the show. Amanda is the founder of a multi-state private practice called Therapy for Women's Center. She authored the book, Not Drinking Tonight, which is an engaging and detailed guide into exploring our relationships with alcohol and how to create an alcohol-free life worth living. And she is the content creator for the highly followed Instagram and TikTok accounts, Therapy for Women. Can't wait for this conversation, so let's get it going. Amanda White, welcome to Champagne Problems. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. We are uh, uh, very glad to have you on today. Amanda and I met at an alcohol-free event a couple of months back, um, actually introduced by a former guest of ours, Chris Marshall with Sands Bar. That was really funny to me. Chris was like, how do you not know Amanda? Why has she not been on your podcast? So I was like, sorry, sorry. And uh, of course, I, after I figured out who you were, I, I recognized that you know, everybody here already followed you and I must be out of the loop. Amanda, give us a little background. I, I, I imagine we'll go into some of your journey and, and we can maybe break break that down a little bit as we get more detailed. But let's start with kind of where you're from and maybe early life a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm Amanda White. You might know me on Instagram as Therapy for Women. Um, I'm a licensed therapist and I have a group practice based out of Philly, Philly called Therapy for Women Center. And, um, yeah, so I'm also sober. I've been sober for almost eight years now and I I wrote a book about it. Thank you. (laughs) And yeah, I mean, I kind of have this story where I've been in, I've been in different spaces with alcohol use, you know, throughout, I started drinking in high school. I moved a lot growing up and that really shaped just how I, I felt like I never fit in. I felt really different growing up and I started drinking in high school and alcohol just kind of felt like friends in a bottle. You know, it was this experience of being able to connect with people and not feel weighed down by my social anxiety. And yeah, it kind of progressed from there. Yeah. Yeah, we know that story. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We certainly do. So yeah, give us the next steps. Yeah, so I also struggled with an eating disorder growing up. Um, I was a competitive figure skater and that pretty much was a breeding ground for not liking your body and, and struggling with that. And really my eating disorder and my alcohol use just kind of went hand in hand. I went to a lot of different therapists growing up, but I was often really more concerned with does the therapist like me? Do they think that I'm doing well? So, I mean, the, the short of it is I lied to almost every (laughs) therapist. (laughs) Um, so no surprise, I didn't get better and things kind of just progressed in, in college, you know, with like party culture. I also found a way to get, uh, prescription drugs. You know, I got into like Adderall and, you know, that kind of quickly led into making my alcohol use way worse. Cause I would have these extreme blackouts. I would not sleep. I would not eat, you know, really I was lucky to graduate, but I was very suicidal and depressed throughout college. I knew my eating disorder was a problem, but I And I knew maybe I shouldn't be, you know, abusing drugs, but I never thought alcohol was a problem. I always Mm. was like, it's the other things. Alcohol is normal. (laughs) So yeah, then I graduated and I was able to stop doing drugs and I, um, didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. So I literally worked at like a frozen yogurt shop when I graduated college, I found a therapist who, um, was honest about the fact that she was in recovery and that completely changed my experience with therapy. I was able to be honest for the first time. I was able to, you know, not have so much shame come up because I didn't think that she was judging me and that really changed everything. And I started to get better in my eating disorder, but I was still drinking a lot. I was drinking kind of like 
every night by that point I was partying less, but I kind of became like an every night wine drinker. And it really felt like, because I was lonely and I didn't have a lot of friends, it felt like the thing to do, you know, it's like you, you drink wine and you watch the bachelorette, Mm -hmm. you do these things that make Mm -hmm. you feel like an adult. Mm -hmm. I then realized that I really wanted to be a therapist. So I went back to school and I went to graduate school and I, um, you know, continued to make progress in recovery with my eating disorder. And I ended up doing my internship at a drug and alcohol rehab. And I was drinking the whole time, never thought that there was an issue. (laughs) Yeah. So much denial, so much denial. I mean, I have like such a specific memory of like being at my like five-year high school reunion and being hammered, talking to people about how I worked at a drug and alcohol (laughs) and I was helping these people and I just loved working with addicts. And like, meanwhile, I literally got kicked out of a bar because I like jumped behind the bar that night and like stole a handle of vodka from the bar. You were learning a lot at the treatment center. Yes, exactly. What was the narrative for you kind of back then? Was it like, I'm, I'm not, like these people I'm on the other side of the desk. Like I don't have DUIs. Like what was, what was kind of going on cognitively? Yeah. That was a big part of the narrative for sure. And it was, it was weird too, because I was like, I understand them, but I was like, (laughs) I understand them because I had an eating, like I have an eating disorder. Not, I understand them because I'm I'm drunk too. (laughs) 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 Um, so that was really strange, but I also, I think thought that I had this narrative too, that I deserved to drink. Mm -hmm. I was like my, you know, my college experience was so fraught with, you know, all of these issues with my, my eating disorder. I mean, my eating disorder was, I was very bulimic and it was the type of like eating disorder when you combine it with the drugs I was doing where I got into car accidents. I wasn't drunk, but I like hadn't eaten and was not cognitively there because I'd been throwing up for, you know, days and days straight that Mm -hmm. I wasn't even paying attention to what I was doing. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of like, I was like, well, I'm not doing that anymore. So I'm, I'm much better. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of how I, I justified it to myself, which is really odd. And then things kind of came crashing down when I was a yoga teacher at the time. I really loved being like a cool yoga teacher. Like I would make jokes in class about, you know, like, (laughs) like I would make jokes about when you were in a position, like imagine you're like doing this at a bar, like a mat, you know, like weird (laughs) stuff like that. Um, Just for anything for the laughs and like for people to think you're cool. Obsessed with being cool. So obviously, you know, I'll get to that later, but a huge barrier for me in quitting drinking was I won't have a social life. I won't be cool. I have Mm -hmm. to give up this identity. But the, you know, what really kind of came to a head was it was Labor Day weekend. I had had an absolutely crazy weekend. I had to teach yoga like the Tuesday after at 6 a.m. I got up and I taught yoga completely drunk. Do not remember a single thing that I said or did. Don't remember if anyone came up to me. Don't remember anything. And I had this moment after that of being like, I am a total fraud. Like I'm going to rehab, you know, I was also, I had to go then later to my drug and alcohol rehab internship, super hungover. And I just had this moment of, I'm just like them. Like, this is crazy. And, you know, I often say I'd had moments like this before. This wasn't even particularly special. I'd had probably worse rock bottoms, like getting into car accidents, things like that in college, um, getting kicked out of, you know, my high school reunion. That was definitely a low, but this was just the moment that I listened to myself when I Mm -hmm. had that thought Mm -hmm. come into my head. Mm -hmm. And I was lucky that I was kind of already in a support system within being in therapy where I was also in group therapy at the time too. And I knew someone, I knew a couple people who were in recovery from alcohol and I called them and they took me to a meeting and I was fortunate that that was the last time that I drank. How old were you at this point? I was 24. You know, when you, when you explain that moment, that's the moment, anybody that's ever, you know, kind of been down this road or even works in this field, 
is is trying to sometimes artificially create that moment in people. Yes. You know, but I mean, and I would love to hear your take on that because it's, you know, we all try to intervene. We all try to motivate and push in certain directions, but you got to find that moment on your own. And in that day, that experience for you, what do you think that was? What do you think that was? And how do you, how do you explain that to our listeners? Yeah, that's such a great question because you're right. It, I mean, as a clinician myself, that's what you want for people. You want people to wake up and have that moment and listen. And from the outside, you can see the insanity a lot of times. And I think part of it was, right, I had been in therapy for two years at that point. And I had been being fairly honest with my therapist. I mean, she had kind of said, you know, I think your, your alcohol use may be pro- causing some of your problems. You know, I, <laughs> I was really trying to work on my self-esteem and my self-worth. And there was a big disconnect between what I wanted and my values. And then I would go out and, you know, ditch friends or do things that I, that hurt my self-esteem. So I think, you know, one of the things as a clinician that we kind of say is you kind of a big part of your job is to to point out inconsistencies. And my therapist did do a good job of doing that as she would kind of say, you want this, but you're doing that. What is that like for you? So I think there was kind of a moment of a lot of the work that I had been doing, you know, and she'd been saying in the background, I finally let in where if that hadn't been going on, I don't know if I would have woken up and really let the truth kind of wash over me. But you can't, as a clinician, force someone into honesty. You can't force them to see something that they're unwilling to see. Like one of my favorite proverbs is like, you can't wake someone who's pretending to be asleep. Ah, Mm. I like that. Yeah. And I think that's just so, you know, if someone is consistently, they're keeping, they're squeezing their eyes shut, you can't (laughs) force them to wake up. And I think a lot of people try, um, But I think you can, I do push against the narrative, right? That you have to have the the most rock bottom. And if my therapist had kind of, you know, she and I explored a lot of what rock bottom is and you can have different types of rock bottoms. And if she would have been someone who kind of said like, you have to stop at your worst and things like that, I don't think I would have gotten sober. I think I would have kept digging, but I was fortunate to, to know that, I was fortunate to have a moment of being like, I see where this is going Mm -hmm. and I don't want to find out this is enough. (laughs) I've done enough. Do you think that would have happened without having that kind of mirror in the clinical setting? I do not think so at all because my parents, like no one else in my life was being that mirror for Mm -hmm. me. I mean, I lived alone, so I didn't have a ton of people around me to kind of point this out. Um, My parents actually when I stopped drinking and I told them I stopped drinking, they didn't support it. They were like, you're being dramatic. Um, you're, how are you going to ever make friends? How are you going to ever get married with something that they said to me? You're not funny if you don't. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Can't you just pull it back a little bit? Like you don't have to quit. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, in their defense, I, like I said, I had an eating disorder. So I often would say these really, you know, (laughs) dramatic things like drinking helps yes (laughs) but I would also say like I mean I literally was like a raw vegan for for like a couple months so they were used to these like dramatic like I'm never gonna eat this again or I'm never gonna do this again so I think they thought it was a part of that and they were like don't set yourself up to failure just drink Mm. less Amanda um not understanding the scope of it so I, I agree. I think that that is, and it, it's something I hold on to as a clinician because sometimes we don't always get to see, you know, someone change and we don't get to see kind of the fruition of our work, but we can know that we planted these seeds. Mm-hmm. We, we helped create some of these connections, be the, the mirror for someone who may not figure it out until later. I think one of the struggles with the, the moment that you're talking about, right. It's like, we have all these moments and, um, as a great area drinker, I had a lot of those moments that led to some years of non-drinking and that still kind of shape and change the way that I drink today. But that moment, from my perspective, is talked about as if it's reserved for alcoholics. 
Like, like only yes. people who have alcoholism are ever going to have somewhat of a rock bottom or a moment or a knowing or a kind of revelation. And I'm just curious kind of what your thoughts are on that for a gray area drinker. Do they have that moment? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, I think any, I mean, I think we can even broaden this out. I think anyone who's sick of their behavior can have a moment of, I can't do this mm -hmm. anymore. I see the way that this is going. So yeah, for a gray area drinking, I mean, I think it's hard and this is where we can go into, right. This is the issue to me with, and it's why I don't love the word alcoholic. I think it can create issues because there is this specific belief in our society that an alcoholic looks this way and you you should never not drink unless you're an alcoholic. <laughs> like you right. need a good mm -hmm. enough reason. Mm -hmm. You're either weird or you're an alcoholic. And those are the only two options. And if you're a gray area drinker, a lot of times people will say, well, you're not that bad. It's not that big of a deal. And they try to, they think that they're not an alcoholic. you. Right, yeah. exactly. But I, I really specialize in kind of that gray area drinker. And I think to me, the question isn't right is this bad enough that I need to stop? Right. It's like, is this good enough for me? Is this, is my life good enough to continue? Mm -hmm. yeah. Like, yeah, is yeah. this worth it? Because we actually do have a choice over whether you want to continue drinking or not. And sometimes I think we can try to count or add up all the things we've lost or all the things that have happened to us but we don't think about how this can still impact your life negatively. It can prevent you from meeting your goals. Even if you haven't lost anything, maybe you also it's prevented you from gaining something. Mm -hmm. Like how is it getting in your way? And like, how is it serving you? Like, let's just talk about the, the yes. benefits you get and what are those worth to you? Exactly. I think it's really interesting. One of the themes that I just kind of want to point out, and this is like a total therapist thing to do. So I'll just own that. But you talked about kind of this theme throughout childhood and college and your experiences with moving and with seeing therapists and with, I was also a competitive figure skater. So I get oh the hot messness of that whole world and having that with your coach, like there's this real performance and wanting to please and to be approved yeah. of and to achieve kind of thing going on there. And just curious, like, what do you do when, when you're not good at drinking? Like that was always my issue is like, I wanted to be good at drinking like other people. And unfortunately for me, like my body didn't respond well to it. I didn't bounce back like other people did. And so I generally don't do things that I'm not good at. Like you just, yeah, you're, you're not a competitive drinker. No, like, <laughs> like I don't go skiing cause I'm not good at skiing. Like I just, I'm, I'm going to stay away from something unless I know that I'm good at it because I really do want to be seen as great and I want to be liked and I want all those things. And that's really hard when this thing is the thing that makes me fun or social or makes me, I think be seen as maybe a version of myself that I want to be. And what do you do with that like concern of if I cut mm. alcohol out, what am I going to be? Does that mean I failed at it? Does it mean I'm not fun? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was a big thing. Cause I absolutely, I relate to you. I was such a people pleaser. I think a huge part of my identity was completely wrapped up in it to the point where I originally wanted to be a therapist because I was like, I'm so nice. Mm -hmm. People I'm talk to me. They love yeah. coming to me. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, I mean, a big thing for me was really deconstructing. One of the best things that my therapist had me look at was, am I people pleasing? Cause I'm nice. Or am I people pleasing to manipulate people into liking yeah. me? And it was a hard conversation, but it was really important for me to recognize because I would say, you know, say the right things to different people. I would act certain ways and it really wasn't authentic. And it created this split in me, right. Between who I was and what I wanted and how I acted to other people and the fear that people didn't like me and wouldn't like me. So, I mean, I think I was a little lucky in that when I stopped drinking, I really had, I really didn't have a lot of friends left. I had like a couple people that I like partied with and my family were, were still supportive, but I didn't, I think it would have been really hard for me to 
stopped drinking in college when I was kind of more at the peak of having friends. I really, I mean, when I graduated college, I don't speak to anyone because I just totally burned every bridge by the end of it. So I'd recognize that it's not like drinking was really working for me being a people pleaser anymore. It wasn't really helping that. <laughs> you weren't pleasing. <laughs> no, <laughs> we don't like when you I, anymore. You're drinking yeah, a little too much. I mean, when I was, you know, keeping the door unlocked, when I was leaving the oven and the stove on and doing oh, all God. these things, you know, like <laughs> people didn't like that, obviously, which I get. Um, so, yeah, I think for me, it was a little easier because I didn't have an identity I had to break. Mm-hmm. I already had kind of shattered that and I just had to, to build something from there. And I really, it was scary, but, um, I just started trusting, like what was a really cool experience for me is I started realizing that I liked myself Mm -hmm. when I was sober. And a lot of what I hated about myself was that I would do things when I was drunk that I, that weren't in character for me, that weren't in alignment with my values. And it was this actual amazing feeling of, I could really, cause I, again, I used to struggle with such severe blackouts that I would literally wake up and have no idea what I did or said. People would tell me I did or said things that I was just like, what? This is insane mm-hmm. that I did that. I can't believe, I mean, I would like say horrible things to my friends and pick fights. So it was uh, in some part, a big relief to be like, oh my gosh, I could actually, I don't have to worry about just blacking out and doing things. I can actually be present in my life and have more control and repair things if I say something wrong or, or make a mistake. And that was, was freeing um, in that way. And there was some freedom that came from realizing that I actually do like my personality when I'm sober and I actually can be funny sometimes and I can actually create more authentic relationships with people when I'm not trying to perform and be this version of who I think they want me to be. You mentioned like even that piece of like acting outside of your values or not even feeling like real Amanda gets to show up because you're blackout. And so you really just don't have control over that. And would you be willing to give our listeners kind of some examples of acting outside of your values, not even necessarily personal things, just examples of them? Because most of the time when I say, you know, Um, let's look at the way that you behave while drinking. I don't always mean while you're drunk. Sometimes I mean when you're in relationship with alcohol, these are the ways that you behave. But you gave a really neat example, which was sometimes just ditch my friends or like for me, it was like I don't show up at the bar when I said I was going to or I don't respond to texts for two hours because I'm like on the dance floor, like do it, you know, just like shitty kind of like flaky things as a friend. And can you give our listeners some more examples of those? Because I think we always go to DUIs. I got. Yeah. Handcuffed. Absolutely. Um, I mean, on the more extreme end, right. It was ditching my friends. It was saying terrible things. It also like, I would sleep with people that I didn't want to sleep with. Mm-hmm. It would be look like I would get in a car with someone who was drunk. Mm-hmm. Like I would ditch my friends at a bar, but even like you said, in the aftermath, like I had so much shame around what I was doing that it created this. I was unable to be honest or apologize or like take responsibility because I hated myself so much. And I had such like a fragile sense of self-esteem. If someone confronted me with something Mm -hmm. I did, I was so defensive. I would just go into a complete denial. I would just, you know, martyr myself and be like, woe is me. They're so mean to me when they're bringing up a legitimate concern. Like you left the door open last Mm -hmm. night. Like, well, you shouldn't have given me three more shots of fireball. Like it's not always my fault. And then you just want to drink more too, you know, (laughs) to cover all that shame. It's like, you know, you got to pour alcohol on it. Exactly. And that was such, I mean, like the cycle of self-sabotage for me was just so insane of people would, you know, confront me or I would feel bad. I would beat myself up. I would be defensive towards them. And then I couldn't handle it. So I would drink more Mm -hmm. and then I would do more things. And the whole cycle would just continue and continue and it's, it's absolutely, yeah, it can be when you're drunk, but I also just, when you are hungover, you can't show up and be a good friend. I mean, I would blow off family events. I was super mean to my parents because they would like ask me if I was okay or 
why there were all the, you know, I would, if I stole their alcohol, I would lie and say that that wasn't me, all of those kinds of things that maybe I was sober when I did that, when I said that to them, but it was, it was within the whole spectrum of, of my alcohol use. Well, and your, your levels are so low after that. You're not, I mean, you're, you're not thinking rationally. You're not in your right mind. You're obviously going to get defensive. Your walls go up. So there's no actual healthy processing of the events that occurred the day or night or week before. So it just compounds and compounds and compounds. Exactly. And it felt so like I have no way to get out of this because my solution again was just to drink. So it never felt like it felt like Groundhog's Day. The mm-hmm. same thing kept happening over and over and over again. And I didn't know how to get it to stop. And in my denial, often I was like, it's other people. Other people are so mean to me. Other people don't understand me. They don't like me. They don't do this or do that. When really I was incapable of taking accountability for anything that I was doing. I wasn't present for people. I was only concerned with myself and I couldn't, you know, if you can't, I think that's like one of the biggest lessons is if you can't take feedback, if you can't be accountable, you can't repair a relationship. It's going to be really hard to feel okay about yourself Mm -hmm. because it feels like everything's out of control. Mm -hmm. I think the insight that you have today is huge, right? And it's so clear and it's so well articulated. And I'm curious, was there any of this insight going on while you were drinking? And it like, even if there were moments, I think so. I mean, the old funny adage I feel like you'll relate to is, um, I was always told by therapists that I was too insightful. Mm. You know, Let me like get ahead of your pain. feedback by owning what yes. I already am. I already know that I'm this. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> So I like had painful insight sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think I did have some, I mean, the hilarious thing, like this is a good example of my insight is so in like my senior year, I wrote a history of eating disorders paper and I, in the introduction talked about how I was in recovery from my eating disorder. And I like talked about being in recovery from a retrospective place when I was actively <laughs> engaging in my eating disorder writing, oh, no. <laughs> like I was not in recovery by any means. So I used to do stuff like that a lot where I would have like moments, like, you know, bird's eye view insight Mm -hmm. into things, but the insight didn't help, you know, it was almost painful because I would know what I should do. And I would know these, this is what I should, these are the steps I should take, but I didn't do any of it. So it, it almost felt like a waste mm-hmm. a lot of times and more painful. Cause I was like, I know all of this stuff, but I can't do any of it. So what's the point? Mm-hmm. Oh man. I, uh, I can absolutely relate to that. I, I, you know, work in this field as well and, and had a little bout with marijuana for periods of time and same type feelings, just the fraudulence, mm-hmm. the imposter syndrome. I mean, just, it's so painful and it only perpetuates it all, you know? knowing that I'm not only lying to other people, but ultimately just lying inside. It's painful. Yeah. You had mentioned the um, differences in perspective around the term alcoholic. Can you talk a little bit about your either identification or rejection of that term throughout your journey? So when I first got sober, the people that I knew went to AA. So I didn't know what else to do. So I went to AA Um, and I called myself an alcoholic. I didn't really love the term, but that was what everyone was doing. And, you know, I was a people pleaser. So very easy for me to just take on that role. I often question it. I mean, I think what's interesting is I had more severe moments in my alcohol use and then more gray area drinking towards the end. So that was really hard for me to like reconcile because everyone else kind of had maybe gray area. And then it got worse and worse and worse where mine was kind of the opposite in that way, which was hard for me to justify. Mm -hmm. And I really struggled with the idea that I would die. Yeah. Like you're going to die if you drink today, you're like, "Mm, I'd probably just do something stupid. (laughs) Right. Right. And I related a lot more to like my eating disorder Mm -hmm. was really out of, like, I was like, I, I may die if I, if I engage in my eating disorder. So I kind of didn't totally believe in it, but again, I had already had some recovery with my eating disorder too. So I kind of just would, when I was resistant, I would kind of put what I knew about my eating disorder onto alcohol and it would kind of help it make sense. 
and I got a sponsor. I did step work, um, all that stuff. More importantly, I made amazing friends in the rooms who I'm still friends with today. Um, and just as my experience, I mean, what was interesting. So after I graduated, I went on to work at a drug and alcohol rehab, actually being sober, which is a very different experience. Is it the same one? <laughs> it was not. <laughs> Thankfully, it was not. Did you go to treatment? I did not. I did not. So you just um, quit. I quit. Yeah, I was, I mean, I was seeing my individual therapist at this point twice a week and I was in an outpatient group. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that really, really helps, but I didn't go to treatment. Yeah. I just kind of was like, I was in therapy a ton and just went to as many meetings as I could for a while. Well, that that's treatment. It's just inpatient. Exactly. So when I worked right at a drug and alcohol rehab after that, they were very 12 step based. So I kind of just used my experience with 12 steps and was very gung ho kind of about 12 steps is the only way. And this is the <laughs> most important thing and was what I knew. And then, um, when I got my license, I started my private practice and I started seeing a lot of individuals who were more gray area drinkers, mm-hmm. who didn't meet criteria to go to inpatient, who, um, were very high functioning, had jobs, had careers, had, friends, family, all of those things, and weren't really in danger of losing it. And me trying to get them, you know, me kind of talking to them about AA or things like that was just completely unhelpful. Mm. And I was left with this experience of a lot of people would just say, right, from treatment, well, those people aren't alcoholics. They're different than these other people. They don't have the disease. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) They're on their way or whatever, right? And, Mm -hmm. but I was like, we're leaving so many people out of the conversation by just being like, you just wait, sit tight and wait until your life gets bad enough. And that totally flipped everything for me on, on its head. And I started thinking about how I think there needs to be a bigger spectrum, especially with my own experience. You know, I think that there was a lot of gray area drinking that happened. And if someone, like I said, would have kind of said I needed to have my rock bottom, I would have kept drinking. So that really led me to kind of believe how many people need different, like people I think need different things. I think that there is a huge spectrum and I really believe and love the term I created, which is called disordered drinking, because I think it really captures Mm -hmm. that you can go through different periods of your life where you have an unhealthy relationship with alcohol and maybe it can get healthy again, or it can you can stop engaging in those patterns. Maybe it gets worse, but it prevents because literally the first thing when you tell someone, Hey, let's talk about your drinking patterns or how did it feel to drink this much? The first thing someone says is, well, I'm not an alcoholic. Right. And you're like, mm-hmm. why are yeah. you looking you're at like, I didn't, you know, I didn't say you were. Yeah. So it just cuts off, right? Like that exploration so, so quickly. And that is really, to me, it's like, if we can, that's where I think the term can just really, it works for a lot of people. It helps a lot of people, but it also can really prevent people from honestly assessing their relationship with alcohol because it's the only drug that like, you're weird. If you don't do it, it's normal to drink. It's not Mm -hmm. normal. And you have a problem if you don't drink. Right. And I mean, that makes total sense. Like if we look at disordered eating, our answer is not abstinence from food forever. And people I found. It's like, it's disordered. We've got to work on the relationship and the impact and the triggers and all the things around it. Exactly. And I really felt like, because I also, you know, specialize in working with women with eating disorders is I was shocked that I could talk to them about, they were able to say like, I think I have some disordered eating or I think I'm doing this. And they were able to talk about it in a completely different way because they didn't have to say like, I'm anorexic or I'm this term. If, if they shared that they were having some trouble with their relationship with food. So, you know, when you think about the spectrum, obviously the very extreme end is, you know, lots of different things working against someone when it comes to addiction and specifically addiction to alcohol. There's genetic predispositions and then there's, you know, potential, you know, whatever is leading them down a path that it's likely they're going to end up being highly addicted to alcohol. Now, like you're talking about all the other people, 
you know, when you think about the majority of people who just drink in life and dial it back at some point. I mean, you think about everybody that we went to college with. We all blacked out at least once or we went yep. out a little too much one week or one month or one year and we had to dial it back. And then those are the people that continue on in life and don't eventually, you know, end up being severely addicted. So I love what everything you're saying and your whole mission because it essentially is to educate that entire population of person to prevent them from progressing to the further states. Um, that's all I have. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a exactly. question. I just, I'm just restating what you're saying because it just makes so much sense. Yeah. And I think too, it's like, I think another important factor in this is, you know, and, and Sam was kind of saying this: some people, maybe they drink less than someone else but they can't tolerate yeah. how terrible it makes them feel. Maybe they have more anxiety, right? Than someone else, or they have trauma or they really care about their values. And it's just so hard for them to do things that are against their values where other people, it doesn't bother them as much. It's not as big of a deal for them. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think we need to come out of looking at whether you have a problem based on consequences, based on how much you're drinking and instead really be like, how does it feel to be yeah. drinking this yeah. much? Because mm -hmm. someone who drinks one drink a day and someone who drinks a lot, who binge drinks, like the person who drinks less, it, they may be more impacted by mm -hmm. it. And Just that's what matters. Point. Look at the quality of your life. You know, I mean, that, exactly. that should be mm -hmm. the criteria. Yeah. And I'm never like, oh my God, my husband can eat so many <laughs> more ribs than me. Like, I'm so jealous. I wish I could eat <laughs> ribs like that. <laughs> I'm like, I can have four. And then I'm like, Duh. yeah, you know what I mean? So, but it was, that's not the way I was in college with drinking. I was like, they can drink this much. I should be able to drink this much. Let me figure out how to drink this much and blackout after blackout after blackout. I was like, yeah. let me try again. <laughs> like, let me try again and let me do it different. And I'll eat right. pasta before I got this time. And then I'll only take this, you know, these types of shots or I'll drink water between or whatever. And forgetting that there can be other things at play. You know, I appreciate your perspective on like, Hey, like my, eating disorder was at play here and Adderall was at play here. Like on one hand, my stomach's empty. And so the alcohol's affecting me a lot more, but the Adderall's maybe yep. letting me drink more because I've got more stamina and those sorts of things. And for me, the thing that no one talked about was alcohol didn't interact well with the birth mm -hmm. control that I was on. Yep. And so two drinks was too many for me because I would feel the same with one drink as I would yep. with 10. It would make me really ill. And no one ever talked about that. They were just kind of like, you should be able to have three or four. And I'm like, I agree. That's what I'm yeah. trying to do. Like, that's what the cycle is about. And just kind of pulling back completely and being like, what does work for me and what doesn't? It was really important. So I guess kind of in your practice with clients, and maybe this is helpful for our listeners, what are some of your favorite questions to explore with them around their drinking and maybe what are you always surprised that clients haven't thought about when it comes to their drinking? Really good question. I mean, I think one of the most basic questions I often start with, because I'm a really big believer too, in being honest about alcohol does can positively impact your life, right? Like it sure. can help alleviate temporary awkwardness. It can help you feel more connected to people. It may be a way, you know, you you have certain friends that that's what they want to do. And I think it's naive to just be like, it won't change. Nothing will happen because sometimes things do change. So one mm -hmm. of my like favorite exercises is to just look with clients of kind of what are the, the costs and the payoffs of drinking and what are the costs and the payoffs of not drinking? And I think that's more powerful mm -hmm. than pros and cons because it's not necessarily good or bad. It's like, a payoff of alcohol might be that I feel temporarily better, but a cost is then I have more anxiety the yeah. next day, or it's costing mm -hmm. me, um, you know, money, it's costing me friendship, it's costing me connection, whatever those things are. So a lot of people don't look at it that way. They kind of look at it of like drink, not drink, pros, cons of each, instead of really recognizing that it's a little more nuanced um, than that. There are any things that you find when you ask clients about they've just never thought about? Like I always give the example of when I ask people, when you're drinking, how do you mm -hmm. know when to stop drinking? They're always like, hmm. <laughs> um, 
And, and I'm like, you know, like, do you, like, is it your vision that changes? Is it like the way that your body feels? Is it, I've had this many, so I know to stop. Like, is it, we're leaving in an hour, so I should stop. Like, what's the, and I'm always shocked that they're like. I drink because I don't want to think about that shit. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Like, they're like, God, you're so not fun as a drinker. Like you plan, like you think about these things while you're drinking, like you're probably not having fun. Right. And, but anyways, I think that's one thing that they're, I'm always surprised that they maybe haven't looked at. So for our listeners, are there any things that you would encourage them to think about that you're always surprised that clients maybe aren't? Yeah. I think one of the big things is just anxiety. I mean, I think so many people do not understand that alcohol litter. I mean, that's why the word anxiety exists. Like it's not just you're anxious because you don't remember what happened last night, or there are certain things that you did or said that you're embarrassed about. I mean, Alcohol is a depressant of the central nervous system. Your brain wants to be in homeostasis at all times. It does that by producing GABA and cortisol and these essentially anxiety producing hormones. Then alcohol leaves your system and you're left with these higher levels of anxiety the next day. And often people think that they can hack that, right? They can figure out a way, right? you know, whenever I talk about this, people are like, well, that's, you know, I'm just going to go eat a lot of greasy food or do this or do that the next day. And or it's like, have a bloody Mary. Right. <laughs> I drank a liquid IV yes, before I went like, to bed. This is like, literally, you can't change the physiological process that's happening in your brain. And, um, mm-hmm. people are shocked when, when I explain that to them and that it's like not really hackable and, if you, if that's worth it to you to have that anxiety, you get to make that choice. But I also think that it's important, especially if you struggle with anxiety, like you're doing something to actively counteract something and make your anxiety worse. Yeah. I mean, I think that's so important for people to understand is that, you know, a lot of times their reason for drinking is to self-medicate and to relieve the anxiety, but you know, it pushes the other end of the scale and actually makes it worse most of the time. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I think too, when we think about dating or socializing or, or anything like that, so many people don't, you know, the first thing is, well, I can't go out on a date. I can't go to a party without a drink. And I mean, it's really, you know, interesting that we could act, you could learn how to do that. And I think <laughs> yeah. people forget that, mm-hmm. that it's actually socializing without alcohol is a skill. Most of us don't learn it because we start drinking in high school. So unless you want to pull from like your middle school prior socialization experience, which is not being an adult, Mm. you don't know how to go on a date. You don't know how to go to a networking event, but you can learn how to do that. But you're not going to be able to learn if you continue drinking. You can't do both at the same time. So I'm a really big believer. And let's also look at where out, al- where you were using alcohol to self-medicate, where you were using alcohol to kind of fill in the gaps of growing, you know, not growing up for lack of a better word. And even if maybe you decide to drink again, what if we can build those skills so that you have a choice? Because if you mm. can't socialize without alcohol, you actually don't have drink. a choice. Yeah. You, yeah. You, yeah. you can either not socialize yeah. <laughs> and, I- and not drink. Or, you know, socialize and drink. So let's teach you how to do it. And then you will be able to have freedom to choose if you want to drink at a party or not. One of the things that I always touch on with my clients in that situation is like, you know, talk therapy isn't going to be the thing that fixes this. You're not going to think your way out of this issue. You have to actually expose yourself to it and learn how to walk through it in a, you know, real time setting. I mean, obviously you can do some stuff in the office, but it's, it's, I think it's difficult for people to grasp that idea of like, okay, well tell me how to do it. Tell me how to do it. Make me feel okay when I'm in that situation. And it doesn't work like that. Nope. Absolutely. And I think the biggest thing that keeps people stuck is they're like, well, I need to feel ready to do this. I need to, you know, Mm -hmm. tell me what to do. Tell me how to reduce my anxiety. I'll know when I'm ready to take the action. And so often it's not that way. You have to take the action first and then, you know, you learn as you go and you, your brain adjusts that way. We could spend probably another two episodes just on this topic, but I do want to give you a bit of a soapbox here to, 
tell us why you work with women and why it's so important to be doing this type of work with women right now. Yeah. So there are a couple of reasons. I mean, one in substance use in general, it is typically a more male dominated space. Um, typically when you look, especially at what an alcoholic is, a lot of people kind of have the idea of it's a man, you know, with, with a bottle in a brown paper bag. Um, so I think that there's just more stigma in that sense with, with women and alcohol use. And I also think, I mean, what we know based on recent research that's come out, um, especially, you know, women have been targeted a lot more lately with alcohol ads, rosé, wine, mommy juice, right? Mommy culture has become this whole thing really with big alcohol companies marketing to women and it's working. Women's drinking is, is mm-hmm. way up. Um, big alcohol identified that there was a gap in the market where women weren't drinking as much as men and they really tapped into it. And especially in the past couple of years with the pandemic, uh, women have been drinking way more than ever. They also are more likely to have negative side effects in terms of health issues, liver problems, all of that kind of stuff than men, just because their bodies can't handle alcohol quite as much. Um, and in my experience too, why I'm really passionate about working with women is often when you add in, I mean, based on studies, almost 50% of people that have a substance use issue also have some type of eating issue as well. And I think that there's so much overlap that happens specifically in, in women with that. I mean, one of the most heartbreaking things that people used to say when I worked at treatment is I would rather be skinny and high than fat and sober. It's just so intertwined. And to me, unless you understand all the overlap of what's going on, right? Like the overlap in mental health issues, the overlap in, in co-addictions, in other things that are going on, people are going to struggle. And I'm a really big believer that you kind of have to get to the root and heal the root of what's going on. In my book, I use... Um, a metaphor of an iceberg and kind of how, like what you see the top part of the iceberg is only about 15% of what's really going on. And unless you heal what's going on underneath, you'll co-addiction switch, you'll hop, you'll do all, you know, you'll kind of end up in that whack-a-mole scenario where you're doing anything to escape how you feel underneath. So those are just some of my reasons, but I think it's, you know, especially with the pandemic, women were disproportionately impacted being mothers, being caregivers, more likely to have lost their jobs. Um, it's a big, it's a big issue. Hmm. Thank you yeah. for all that, Amanda. That was, uh, that was very moving. We, uh, so we typically, we're getting towards the end here and we typically ask a couple of questions. Uh, we call them our power questions. And one of them is, is generally we ask, why do you care? But I think you just gave us a lot of that. And I want to challenge you to dig even deeper and, and, and look at that question beyond, um, you know, your, your passion towards women and look more inward and obviously beyond people pleasing <laughs> and look into why you actually uh, care so much. Well, I think what I would add to that is really also like I care because when I was trying to get sober, I had no role models of anyone that I knew besides some of the people in AA who were sober. I used to carry around like an index card of sober celebrities in my wallet because <laughs> top, um, three. top three, Robbie <laughs> Blake Lively was one of them. Nice. Um, I thought you were going to say Robbie was on it. <laughs> Um, yeah. And I would carry that around because no one, I mean, this was, you know, when I got sober, Instagram was in the beginning phase. I couldn't imagine. I mean, it's why I started my Instagram account partly because I couldn't imagine what my life would look like. And I think that's such a barrier in people trying to change their life is they want to look for someone who they could emulate or who can show what's possible. And I couldn't imagine or think about what my life would be. And I kind of had to just put one foot in front of the other and, and hope that it would get figured out. Um, so that's a huge, you know, a lot of what I do also, I think is for kind of my own inner child and my younger self of what I wish I could, you know, a lot of my captions on Instagram are kind of things that I wish I would have known or things I wish I could have 
told her. Fantastic. Give us the three pros of you removing alcohol from your life. Number one would be self-esteem, self-worth. It is incredible the confidence I think you get when you know that you are in control (laughs) and you're not going to like, like it used to feel like when I blacked out, this like alien took over (laughs) my psyche and it was like a different person (laughs) than me. And it was exhausting being in that space. So, I mean, even just now, right? Like the self-confidence I get of like, I can go to a party sober, I can go do something sober and I don't worry that I'm going to get into a fight with my husband or say something stupid or do something that I regret. It's such an incredible feeling. Um, Number two, I'm someone who's always struggled with anxiety. So it has helped reduce my anxiety so much. (laughs) I can't even explain Um, so that's a huge benefit. And I would say, I would say number three, just like authenticity, like the level of deep connection I have with people in my life, with friends, with family. Um, it's just, I have such higher quality relationships because I'm not pretending people know who I am. You know, I'm the same person online as I am in my real life. And there's just, there's just such a thread of, of confidence that comes when you're able to, to be authentic and be known and have people know you. Mm. Thanks for walking through your fear and sharing everything with the world. Yeah, absolutely. Amanda White, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much. Thank you guys so much for having me. That was wonderful. Thank you so much, Amanda. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are solely those of the hosts and guests and are not a substitute for medical advice. If you feel like you may need professional help, here are some resources. For the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration hotline, call 1-800-662-4357 or visit smsa.gov. For listeners in the Charlotte, North Carolina community, visit dilworthcenter.org or call 704-372-6969 or visit theblanchardinstitute.com or call 704-288-1097.